All right, James, if you recall, we finished James a couple of weeks ago. Um, This is our springboard and our launch into the Old Testament. One, as we traveled through James, um, I communicated there's, you can look at James and, and drill down into a couple of sentences at a time, a couple of ideas, a paragraph. That's one way to read through James. And then there's that other idea of looking at his whole context. What is that theme that James is communicating? What was he dealing with in his culture? What is he seeing? Why, why is he addressing the church? Just one of those big picture ideas. So we're going to stand in a very big picture idea as we begin our study in Samuel today, looking at Samuel's context, his individual context, and the overall word of God. But I wanted to begin here in James because this is really, you know, just my personal why we're going back to the Old Testament, what the Lord is speaking to me. We watched the Old Testament and how it influenced James in his, in his culture, in his context, in his personality, in his life. And this is a biblical trivia question for you. And I need to find the verse. Here we go. Chapter 5. Verse 4 says that the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Sabaoth. So Sabaoth is a, it's a Hebrew word, so it's transliterated into the Greek. Our translators have kept it in this phrase for us. But it means the Lord of hosts. Have you heard that term in the Old Testament before, the Lord of hosts? Now here's the trivia question. Who is the first person recorded in the word of God for the word, the title for our Lord, the Lord of hosts to escape their mouth? Come on, names, who is it? Anybody, loud? Noah, nope, nope, nope. Samuel, somebody say Samuel, nope. Nope, no. No. (laughs) I love it. No. None of you are real Christians. I did did not know this. The first person to call our God the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, Hannah. In her her prayer, hey, in her, did somebody yell Hannah? Good for you. Real Christian. Well, Jennifer was in prayer this morning. She cheated. But it was you that said it after the rest of the names. So this is, this is our springboard. Again, just the influence that the Old Testament has upon us today. Many of you have biblical names, Old Testament names, New Testament names. How the, how the Word of God influences us today in so many ways that we don't recognize. And in the book of Samuel, here you have this woman crying out to our God in her barrenness. In her, in her, you know, in her pain and her struggle. And this is the first person who calls the Lord, the Lord of hosts in the Old Testament. It's a very, it's a, it's a powerful title. It's a powerful idea in regards to God's character. And again, it, it's sourced in the book that we're going to go back and study. But before we even look at the whole Old Testament, I want to point out what the Word of God has to say about Samuel himself. So I want you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 99. There's four places, two in the Old Testament, two in the New Testament, where Samuel's name shows up outside of the book of Samuel. And this is what the first one we're going to sit in is the cultures, you know, the future culture, their idea of where Samuel fit into the overall biblical context as a hero of the Old Testament. The second quote we're going to look at is God's perspective on Samuel, which I think is incredibly important. Then we'll get into the New Testament for a couple of other quotes. But I told you, so next week we are going to study Psalms 1 and 2 as an introduction to Psalms because as we're in Samuel, David is the author of so many of the Psalms that we have. We're also going to spend a lot of time of him crying out to the Lord for deliverance, for repentance, for salvation, for joy, all the different ways that David's soul sang to the Lord. We're going to spend a lot of time in the Psalms. So here we're going to start in Psalm 99. This is awesome. 
the Lord reigns. Yahweh reigns. Lord's name is in all caps in the Old Testament. That is these four letters in the Hebrew, Y-H-W-H. If you've ever heard the name Jehovah, that is where the name comes from, that idea. Most scholars today understand how to pronounce that as Yahweh. Yahweh reigns, the self-existent one, the one who always was, the one who is, the one who will continually be is what Yahweh represents. Yahweh reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion, and he is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. There's, there's so many ideas as we just went through this that if you do not know the Old Testament, if you have not taken the time to read the Old Testament and, and study and understand, you wouldn't know what, what are cherubim. What does it mean that the Lord dwells between the cherubim? There's a very specific context to what the psalmist is pinning this song for us to worship God, the one who reigns, that we ought not to only tremble, but the whole earth ought to be moved in regards to the presence of God and who he is and his power. And this all revolves around praising God because he is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. Is God a God of justice? There's there's going to be many times as we study Samuel where you will feel like God is unjust. There are times in the Old Testament where what God is doing in action doesn't make sense if you don't understand the whole nature and character of God. And we're going to sit in these ideas. God is the God of justice. He loves justice. You have established equity, equality. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Hold on to that in a minute when we get into Jeremiah, because we're going to see God execute justice and righteousness, and it's very uncomfortable. Verse 5, exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Here's our context. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. So again, the the psalmist that is writing this, generations after Moses and Aaron and Samuel, is lifting Samuel to that same position of Moses. Aaron is that first high priest. Samuel was among those who called on Yahweh's name. They called upon the Lord, and what did God do? He answered them. Again, the psalmist is encouraging his generation, and he is encouraging us. Just like Moses had a relationship with the Almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, you can call on the same God, and he will answer you. Samuel was among those who called on his name. Samuel's name to ideas that they press into language-wise. One means it's the name of God, and the other is heard of God. And most Especially those, those commentaries that sit in application, they sit in that translation of heard of God because God heard Hannah's prayer as she called out to the Lord of hosts. They called upon the Lord and he answered them. Verse 7, he spoke to them in the cloudy pillar and they kept his testimonies and the ordinance he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives is a title, though you took vengeance on their deeds. We were talking about this 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 morning. God is a gracious God, and he has forgiven us of all of our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, have you had consequences in your life because of your disobedience and your rebellion against your creator? I have. I know God is the God who forgives. I know God is the God who hears the God who gives, the God who provides, the God who speaks, the God who knows, the God who loves. I know God is merciful. I know God is gracious. 
We are told in the New Testament, eternal life is to know your God, and you only get to know him through his son, Jesus, because Jesus is the manifestation of God in his fullness of grace and truth. Finishing out this psalm, they knew him as the God who forgives. Though you took vengeance on their deeds, the exhortation, exalt the Lord our God and worship him at his holy hill, reference to Jerusalem. For the Lord our God is what? Holy. Jeremiah chapter 15. God's perspective of Samuel, Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah is a prophet sent to the nation of Israel. Not necessarily, yes, as a cry for repentance, a cry for people to come back to the Lord. But Jeremiah was given those words of judgment. Babylon is coming, and there's a consequence. Jeremiah watches the destruction of Jerusalem. Lamentations is his lament at that destruction. Jeremiah chapter 15, God's voice. The Lord said to me, even if Moses... And Samuel stood before me. My mind would not be favorable towards this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. And it shall be if you say to them, where should we go? Then you shall tell them, thus says the Lord, such as for death to death, such as for the sword to the sword, such as for the famine to the famine, such as for the captivity to the captivity. I will point over them four forms of destruction, says the Lord, the sword to slay, the dogs to drag, the birds of the heavens and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. I will hand them over to trouble and all the kingdoms of the earth. We're going to be studying about the kingdoms today. Because of Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, for what he did in Jerusalem, and the Lord goes on. The Lord executes justice and righteousness. And this is painful. These are his kids, and we're going to get into the overall context and narrative of the story. It's because of their disobedience that the curses that were promised to come in their disobedience that they would come. This is the fulfillment of God fulfilling his holy, righteous, and just word. And again, this, this kind of idea, is, is, it can be really uncomfortable. But the reality is, is this state is not necessary for any human soul because he's told us where happiness, where blessing, where eternal life is found, and it's all in him provided through his promised son. All right, New Testament, turn to Acts chapter 2. There in Jeremiah, God elevating Samuel to that same position of Moses, even if Moses were praying to me to turn away from this judgment. Even though Samuel were there, I heard Samuel. Even if Samuel were asking me, I would not turn away from the judgment there in Jeremiah 15. Now in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John just through the power of God. Jesus has healed a man where he is jumping up and leaping and praising God. Peter now turns his attention to the people and preaches a message. At the end of this message, beginning in Acts 3, verse 22, it says, Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall, utterly, shall be utterly destroyed from among the people prophecy in regards to Jesus. Verse 24, yes, and all the prophets, notice from Samuel and those who follow. So we'll get to Samuel is the, there were other prophets considered the former prophets even before Samuel and in Samuel's day, but this office of prophet is really seen to begin in Samuel's time and era, and we'll get to that in a minute. So from Samuel and those who follow, as many of it has spoken and foretold these days, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
proclamation of the gospel to Abraham. We'll get to it in a minute. To you first, God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Here again, the influence of Samuel upon Peter, recognized as a prophet, used here by the Holy Spirit as he is preaching the gospel to the Jews there in Jerusalem. Last one, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 is, has been nicknamed the Hall of Faith because by faith, all these individuals did stuff. And we're going to go look at these people in brief. So what Hebrews 11 is doing in its context is what we are going to do in just a minute as we step in the Old Testament. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. By faith, Joseph. Moses. Jump down to, by faith, Jericho. So in Joshua, by faith, Rahab, in the book of Joshua, verse 32 of Hebrews 11, what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, all in the book of Judges. Also of David and Samuel, the prophets. Listen to the note, just not on all these individuals, but just specifically focusing on Samuel who through faith subdued kingdoms, those kingdoms that are in opposition to God's kingdom, who subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight to the armies of the aliens, women received their dead, raised to life again, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, um, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom... The world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Sitting in Hebrews, Jesus is better. As we travel through the Old Testament, Jesus is better than the angels of God that came with messages and revealed themselves and stood in these contexts. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the priests, Aaron, and all of the Levitical priests. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than the judges. Jesus is better than the prophets. You sit there and you lift up any hero that you have among men and women in this world. Jesus is better. And this is the context of the entire word of God. So now I want you to turn to your table of contents all the way in the beginning of your Bible. Because there's, there's a pattern, there's a narrative, there's, there's a line that is always pointing to Jesus. And as we sit in the Old Testament, we are going to repeatedly bring up what does this say about God? When we get into Samuel, Samuel is dealing with multiple men, beginning with the high priest Eli and his sons, and his sons were wicked. You sit with Samuel and his sons. The culture did not like Samuel's sons. You sit with Saul and his sons, specifically Jonathan. You sit with David and his multiple sons and everything that goes on in their narrative and their context. These, these narratives have been preserved for us so that we would know the nature and character of God and that we would know the nature and character of our own hearts. As you sit, as we are going to sit with these characters and these stories, we find snapshots of our hearts and our lives and our context and each and every one of them. And this is, again, what you are a creature 
You are told, we are told that we have been created by the God who created the heavens and the earth. We're going to go sit in Genesis in a minute in that very foundation of things. We are told in John that Jesus, as the word of God, was with God in the beginning. He was God. All things were created by him and for him. You are a product. And the source of you, he wants you to know him. He wants you to be one with him. He has called you. He has invited you into this presence. But we sit in this world of brokenness. And we're going to get into the definition of that brokenness. So this, the Old Testament provides us this long arc narrative. When you look at your table of contents from Genesis to Malachi, so the book of Moses, those first five books, so from Moses to Malachi is a thousand years of Jewish history. Roughly 1400 B.C. to 400 B.C., the intertestamental periods known as this, this 400 years of silence before Jesus came. You have a thousand years of history where God is calling men and calling women to himself that he reveals himself to and that he sends to the cultures, to the peoples, to the kingdoms to be his representative to reveal what is true because what is true has been lost. You sit in the narrative of Genesis, the first two chapters, and the first 11 chapters, really first 12 chapters of Genesis, you ought to study, you ought to know, you ought to be very intimately aware of its content because what it communicates, it, it continues through the entire word all the way through to Revelation when God's going to wrap everything up and you have the restoration of his kingdom. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates the heavens and the earth. He creates male and female in his image. Everything is good. Everything is perfect. This is his kingdom. We are told in the New Testament as Jesus teaches us to pray, we are to pray for God's kingdom to come. For God to come and not only take up residence within us continually, but to be our sovereign, to be our king, to be our source of law, of truth, of direction, of hope, of grace, of mercy, of love. He is to be our all. Adam and Eve had God's perfect kingdom. But a competitive king stepped into that context, and this is the serpent, Satan, and sin with him. We don't have the details in the word of God of God creating angels, but we know that there is this order that God has created in the spiritual realm. We see it throughout the pages of the Old Testament. We are told that Satan, for whatever reason, was welled up with pride in himself. He wanted to be exalted, just like that psalm that we read, that God is high, God is sovereign, God is king. He is to be exalted. He is to be worshiped. We are told that that's what Satan desired for himself. And this is where the temptation comes for Adam and Eve. God, Satan presented to Adam and Eve a competitive kingdom. God's kingdom is not enough. God is withholding from you. And they disobeyed the commandment, the law, the instruction, the teaching of their almighty God. And what happened? Death entered in. Sin entered in. Rebellion entered in. And again, this is all in Genesis chapter 3 where when God shows up and Adam and Eve realize that they are now unclothed. They do not have the covering of God anymore. They're aware of their nakedness. God gives to them their consequences. He is the God who forgives, but he is also the God who took vengeance. And death enters into humanity. And then again in Genesis, you find the roots of all of these, all of these things that we know that are wrong. Genesis, Genesis chapter 4, we see this beginning of violence from one human being against another human being. Abel is the man of God in Genesis 4. And Cain is jealous. Cain is hurt. Cain is offended. Cain is mad at God, and he takes it out on his brother, and he kills his brother. God is not the source of violence. Man is the source of violence. And you watch that violence grow in the narrative of Genesis. We also find polygamy as we get into, as we get into Samuel's story. Elkanah has two wives. Hannah is not just a singular bride. She has a rival 
wife that she is in competition with in her marriage. We find the source of polygamy there in Cain's descendants in Lamech. Again, this is not something that God uh, endorses. It's something that God tolerates in humanity. From the beginning, how did he create Adam and Eve? Adam and Eve, not Adam and Eve and Barbara and go on down through the list. So you find those, those roots the declaration that there is a God who created the heavens and the earth. We sit in a culture and a time that there is only one other narrative, one other choice that you have, and what is it? You weren't created, you evolved, you were the product of chaos, you are the product of nothing. That means that there is no morals, there is no good, there is no bad. The only rules that we have in society is what society tells us our rules are supposed to be so that we can all get along with one another in some fashion. That's what evolution is. If that is the source, is nothing, then nothing matters. Again, the narrative, God, the Lord reigns, Yahweh reigns. He is the source. He is, he is the provision of all. And again, there's all these competing kingdoms and narratives that are discussed. Satan has his kingdom. Cain had his kingdom. Lamech has his kingdom. In Genesis chapter 5, you get this genealogy. And the depression of the genealogy is everyone dies. This person lived for so long, they had this son, and they died, and they died, and they died, and they died, sitting in human misery and death and pain. There's one bright spot in Genesis chapter 5. Who is it? Enoch. The Bible, all the way in Genesis 5, tells us about the resurrection. Enoch walked with God. Enoch had a relationship with God. He had faith in God. And because Enoch walked with God, it says God took him. Didn't kill him, did not die. God took Enoch. And that's from the very beginning gives us this hope of resurrection. Those who walk with God, and we have the name today through the name of Jesus Christ. If you walk with God, he will take you to himself for all eternity. And this is the promise of eternal life all the way back in Genesis. Genesis 6 begins with what? This, this list of death after centuries. You sit in this testimony that every thought, the intentions, the meditations of the heart in men was nothingness, worthlessness, violence. To the point, its, its escalation came about to the point where God, in his righteous, just judgment, he comes and he executes all of humanity except eight people through the flood. Those eight people get off the ark. And God is starting over with a very broken humanity. Genesis 10 gives us a list of 70 nations that come from Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Of those 70 nations, again, we have this, we have this man who is called Nimrod. Nimrod is a king who founds Babylon and Assyria. These nations that later on generations, that they stand in opposition to God in their idolatry, in their wickedness, in their behaviors, in their religion, everything, they stand in opposition to God. And it's those nations that God uses to discipline to judge his children when he brings down Assyria to judge the northern ten tribes and when he brings Babylon later on to destroy Jerusalem in the temple as we just read in the time of Jeremiah. Out of these table of nations when you sit with with you sit with Nimrod it talks about the beginning of his kingdom is Babylon the beginning of his kingdom is Assyria you start sitting in these definitions of what a human kingdom is what human culture has developed over time in all of its systems of government, human kingdoms are always in contrast to God's kingdom, and that includes America. Our country is very much so based upon many biblical principles. We're going to get, as we get into Samuel, we're going to sit, Samuel was a prophet, a seer, Samuel is the last judge, a ruler, a governor at this time in Israel's history. Samuel is also a Levite and stands in that role as priest. In Samuel, you have a consolidation of a lot of power. 
Whenever power is consolidated in humanity, it always bends towards wickedness. Even if there is a singular individual that stands up and is submitted to God in all of their life, when it's handed to the next generation, the next generation always turns away. It's a repetitious narrative that we have in the Word of God and throughout human history. Nimrod's kingdom is founded in humanity as you sit in that narrative out of those nations you have the whole story of the tower of babylon where humanity is consolidating together they are building their kingdom they are building their tower and god comes down and he disperses all of humanity into thousands of languages throughout the world as a judgment because when humans consolidate together, sin grows and nothing will be outside of our reach. And we can see that in our global culture going on today, where whatever we imagine in many ways is coming about. And lots of the imagination of current humanity is totally bent on evil and a kingdom in opposition to God. So that's that narrative up through Genesis chapter 11. That's the context, that's the people, that's what's going on, that's what's happened. And it's out of that pool of humanity that God calls one man to himself. And that man's Abraham. Abraham, we are told for sure, his father was an idolater. His father is a descendant of Shem. When you sit in the genealogies, Shem's life and Abraham's life overlapped each other. So Abraham is only one generation removed away from those who stepped off of the ark, that personal testimony. But here you have Abraham in his idolatry and a culture of idolatry and Yahweh, the God who created the heavens and the earth, stooped down and he calls a man to himself. And this is the constant narrative of the Bible and it's the constant narrative that we have for centuries. God calls men and women to himself. And he works through those individuals. He works miracles. He works wonders. He, you know, we're going to sit, we'll sit and judge it. Anyway, he calls people to himself to reveal himself to those individuals so that the greater culture around those individuals will know who their creator is. He calls Abraham to himself, gives him promises. The main promise that he gives to Abraham is through your seed, Abraham. What we just read in Acts out of Peter's mouth through your seed, through your descendant, all the nations of the world, all the peoples, all of the kingdoms, they will be blessed. And the only blessing, the only, the only it's, it's sitting in that restoration in life because if we sit in death, we're, humanity is sitting in that curse as defined in the Old Testament. So you sit in the rest of Genesis that follows Abraham's descendants from Abraham to the promised son Isaac to Jacob to Jacob's 12 sons and then you really get to sit in the tribes of Israel but not just in the tribes of Israel you sit in the tribalism of all the families all the clans of the world. At that time, again, they, they consolidate into bigger groups, usually through war, through military efforts, as these clans consolidate into whoever, whoever has the greatest power, but a great deal of division and violence in humanity. His descendants find themselves in Egypt because of famine at the end of the book of Genesis, and that gets into Exodus, which is the narrative of what? The kingdom of Egypt versus the kingdom of God. And you sit, God continually manifests himself and reveals himself to be the gods of gods. As the nation of Egypt is crying out to, to their gods for deliverance, had no effect whatsoever in regards to what the will of God was as he is delivering his people from the slavery of Egypt, from the wickedness of humanity and its corrupt culture, and he delivers them through this outstretched arm and mighty hand, calls Moses, right? Calls a baby out of the water and appoints this one to deliver his people. And you sit in the, the roots of who Moses was as they go into the wilderness. There's 40 years in the wilderness. They're there for 40 years because of their unbelief and because of their rebellion. But as you sit in the book of Exodus, you get halfway through it. God is speaking to Moses, and he tells Moses to build a structure, a portable structure. 
And this portable structure is the place where God says, here is where I am going to dwell in your midst. And this is the tabernacle. The temple doesn't get built till Solomon's time, but when you sit with this tabernacle, this is where Samuel begins. The tabernacle is in Shiloh. This is where Eli is high priest. This is where Hannah goes and prays. This is where Samuel serves the Lord is all revolving around this portable tent that God gave the instructions to Moses and the people to build. And the focus of that tent, the central point of that tent is the ark. It's the ark of the covenant. All it is is a wood box overlaid in gold, but what's important is what's inside the box. It's God's law. It's his commandment. It's his instruction. You see it in Exodus chapter, what is it? Chapter 20, Deuteronomy chapter 5, lists out those 10 commandments, what is on these two tables. But over this box, the lid of this box is called the mercy seat. In that psalm that we just read that the Lord, Yahweh, dwells between the cherubim. That's the reference. He dwells between this golden lid that has these two angels' wings facing to the center, focused on this focal point where God promised to dwell in the midst of his people. But the issue is that presence of God, where he would meet with the people, is inside this tent in a room called the Holy of Holies that the high priest was allowed to enter one time per year on the Day of Atonement with sacrifice, with blood. Outside of that room was another room where you have the table of showbread, this, this candlestick with light and the altar of incense and all of this revolving around the imagery that God is giving to us in relationship, what it means to worship him, what it means to have a relationship with him, how he is dwelling in our midst, how he is speaking to us, and the demand that we had, the demand of the need that we have for a mediator to stand between a holy God and an unholy man. Again, Jesus is better than any priest. Jesus is the high priest. He is our mediator. And this is all of the imagery that we are provided in the boring chapters of Exodus. And then you get into the very painful and boring chapters of Leviticus, dealing with the Levites, dealing with the sacrifices. These are incredibly painful to read through if you do not read it with Jesus in mind. If you keep your Savior in mind when you read through these passages, they explode with meaning and they explode with worship. We go through all of these weird sacrifices that have nothing to do with our religious practice today. Every single one of them is pointing to the reality and the need of the sacrifice of God's Son for our sins on the cross and his resurrection being the singular testimony of the reality of that. Leviticus sits in all of that. And there's wonderful nuggets in the book of Leviticus if you can get through the painful parts. Numbers is named after two numberings of the people. There was a numbering of them at the beginning when they left Egypt. And there is a numbering again of them at the end of 40 years before they go into the promised land. And of that generation that left Egypt, how many individuals get a step into God's promise? Two. The rest of that generation cut off from the promised land, not cut off from God, but their unbelief had a consequence in their life and in their context. And God said, you will not go into the land. Moses worshiped God, great man of God, knew God as the God who forgives God took vengeance on Moses' behavior, misrepresenting him to the people in his anger. Moses, you will not lead the people into the promised land. God took vengeance on Moses. Moses is in heaven. Moses is in God's presence. His sin had consequences in his life. You sit in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is known as this second telling where a lot of the narratives and the commands of God are being repeated. But in that, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you have God listing out, here are the blessings for obedience. Here's the blessings of having a relationship with your creator. And here are the cursings for disobedience. Here's the, the consequences 
consequences of pursuing idols in other kingdoms or your own kingdom in your life. In Deuteronomy, it lists those things out. When you sit in Joshua, Moses has died. Joshua is the one who brings the children of Israel into the promised land. And what happens? War. Battle after battle. Repetitious sin. I want you to turn to the very last chapter of Joshua. Because this begins to set up themes for the culture at the time of Samuel. The end of Joshua, Joshua 24, this is beginning in verse 13. God says, I have given you a land for which you did not labor and cities for which you did not build and you dwell in them. You eat of the vineyards and the olive groves which you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Tremble. Be moved, quake, serve him in sincerity and in truth. Put away the gods which your fathers, including Abraham, served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Joshua dies. That's his farewell speech. Turn over to Judges chapter 2. The book of Judges is an absolutely miserable book to read because you watch this circular life and you watch it just degrade in the overall culture for 400 years in Israel. Chapter 2 says the angel of the Lord, this is Jesus in the flesh, came, to, uh, came from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you but they shall be thorns in your side and their God shall be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Jump down to verse 13. It says, Then the children of Israel did evil. I, when I first read the Old Testament, I thought the children of Israel were a bunch of idiots. And then I realized just what, what a snapshot that they are of every human heart. There are such lessons to be learned out of these pages. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They served the Baals. Again, this is foreign gods. They are serving another kingdom. They forsook the Lord, their God of their fathers, and brought them out of the land of Egypt. That brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, how the culture can influence us. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the, anger, uh, the Lord to anger. Then they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, so he delivered them into the hand of plunderers who despoiled them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, they know him as the God who forgives. The Lord raised up judges. These are rulers. These are governors, so to say, not kings. but rulers. He raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked and obeying the commandments of the Lord, they did not do so. And it goes on, turn to the very last sentence of Judges. 
This is the snapshot of Samuel's day. This is what is going on in the culture to which Samuel was born. And this is a repetitious statement in the book of Judges. The, uh, the very last sentence of Judges is the fourth time it is stated. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In those days, God was not king. God was not submitted to. God was not known. God became this religious figure that when I am in trouble, because the gods that I am crying out to are not working, he is the last one that I go to. And even in his mercy and his grace, he continues to send deliverers, judges to his people to show his mercy, to show his grace. Yet he doesn't put up with sin in our lives. There's consequences. The New Testament tells us that God will not be mocked. You and I, we will reap what we sow. If you sow sin into your life, it's going to have its fruit. It's going to have its product. It's going to have its consequences. So even though God is a gracious God from beginning to end, we know him as the God who forgives. Yet he takes vengeance on our rebellion against him. And again, these are, these are the variety of ideas. This, this gets us up to the point where the narrative of Samuel begins. And the narrative of Samuel is going to begin with a high priest who is old and is doing nothing in regards to the sin of his children in his own house and in their own behavior as priests, and God judges them for it. God places a woman into a position where she cries out to God, and he hears. And the reason why he puts her in that position is because God wants a Samuel. And Hannah, when this, this Samuel is born, he is dedicated to God for his entire life. And you watch, again, where we begin and what the Bible has to say about Samuel in, in lifting him up above the other biblical heroes that we have, it's because of the dedication of his life and not just because his mom dedicated him, but he chose to be obedient to the God who created the heavens and the earth in his context, in his time, which was not easy. And if you think our culture is evil, it has not a candle to hold to the time of the nation of Israel. In its corruption governmentally, in its perversion culturally, doesn't hold a candle. And then the people, they get tired of their cycle. And in this being sick of the cycle and being sick of God not being who they imagine God to be, they demand to be ruled by a king just like the rest of the world. And this is the narrative that Samuel is going to give to us, that the nation of Israel did not reject Samuel as a judge. They rejected God as their king, and they rejected God's kingdom because they wanted their own, because they wanted to look like the rest of the world. And then God gives to them Saul. And this is the narrative that we're going to sit in. Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin is the most worthless tribe of the nation of Israel. And if you want to know the reference, all you have to do is go read like the last four chapters of the book of Judges. It is horrific what the tribe of Benjamin does. It is so horrific that the other 11 tribes come and they almost wipe Benjamin out. You want a king? He gives them a man from the least tribe. Saul is a man who is insecure and disobedient 
and makes all these excuses in his life of why he wants to do what is right in his own eyes. He is the product of the culture that he was born in. Samuel was born into the same culture. David was born into the same culture. We are told David, again, the least of these, the youngest of his household, a nobody shepherd. But God called that man, and he called that man because that man had a heart that was after his creator. And that man in the first half of his life can do no wrong in the narrative of Samuel. But he sins bad. And when he gets called out for his sin, he makes no excuses. He repents. He turns to God. You are the God who forgives. Cleanse me. Wash me. Purge me, restore to me, stay with me, and send me to the people that I can be your image to them. But that sin that David sows into his life impacts his household tragically. Rape, murder, rebellion. And the thread through it all is God's kingdom, God is king, God's grace, God's mercy. And again, this this line points all the way to Jesus Christ. David is going to be given a promise that his son will sit on the throne of Israel for all eternity. That is not in reference to a man. That is in reference to God's son, to Jesus Christ. We don't look to David as the fulfillment of prophecy of like he was the perfect king. The narrative that we're going to get in Samuel makes sure that we do not exalt man, but we exalt the God who became like us, who tabernacled, who dwelt in our midst, full of grace and full of truth, full of authority, died the death that every single one of us deserve. As our God, as our priest, as our king, as our prophet, as our all in all, as the very son of God. And again, the resur- his resurrection from the death is the testimony of the reality of that fact. That's why we gather. That's why we worship. Worship team, come on up. And again, just go back to Psalm 99 where we just began this morning. The Lord reigns. All you people Let us tremble together in fear, in awe, in respect, in honor of our God as we turn to him in praise because he is holy, he is good, he is the God who forgives. If you don't know him, I pray that this would be the day that you submit to, I want to know my creator that you would know him as the God who forgives you of your sin, that you would know him as the God who gives you life, that you would know him as the God who withholds just and righteous judgment from you, that you would know him as the God of grace who gives you everything and none of it you deserve. And what do we do in response? We remember, we worship, we praise, we serve, we reject every single kingdom that stands in opposition to him and we submit ourselves as citizens of heaven to his kingdom with the promise of the reality that he dwells in our midst today. Amen?